Section 10 of The House Behind the Cedars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The House Behind the Cedars by Charles W. Chestnut. Section 10 The Dream. The marriage was fixed for the 30th of the month immediately after which Tryon and his bride were to set out for North Carolina. Warwick would have liked it much if Tryon had lived in South Carolina, but the location of his North Carolina home was at some distance from Patesville, with which it had no connection by steam or rail, and indeed lay altogether out of the line of travel to Patesville. Rena had no acquaintance with people of social standing in North Carolina, and with the added maturity and charm due to her improved opportunities, it was unlikely that any former resident of Patesville who might casually meet her would see in the elegant young matron from South Carolina more than a passing resemblance to a poor girl who had once lived in an obscure part of the old town. It would, of course, be necessary for Rena to keep away from Patesville. Save for her mother's sake, she would hardly be tempted to go back. On the 20th of the month, Warwick set out with Tryon for the county seat of the adjoining county to try one of the lawsuits which had required Tryon's presence in South Carolina for so long a time. Their destination was a day's drive from Clarence, behind a good horse, and the trial was expected to last a week. "'This week will seem like a year,' said Tryon ruefully, the evening before their departure. "'But I'll write every day.' and she'll expect a letter as often. "'The mail goes only twice a week, George,' replied Rena. "'Then I shall have three letters in each mail.' Warwick and Tryon were to set out in the cool of the morning after an early breakfast. Rena was up at daybreak that she might preside at the breakfast table and bid the travellers good-bye. "'John,' said Rena to her brother in the morning, "'I dreamed last night that mother was ill.' "'Dreams, you know, Rena,' answered Warwick, lightly. "'Go by contraries. "'Yours undoubtedly signifies that our mother, "'God bless her simple soul, "'is at the present moment enjoying her usual perfect health. "'She was never sick in her life.' "'For a few months after leaving Patesville with her brother, "'Rena had suffered tortures of homesickness. "'Those who have felt it know the pang.' The severance of old ties had been abrupt and complete. At the school, where her brother had taken her, there had been nothing to relieve the strangeness of her surroundings, no schoolmate from her own town, no relative or friend of the family nearby. Even the compensation of human sympathy was in a measure denied her, for Rena was too fresh from her prison-house to doubt that sympathy would fail before the revelation of the secret, the consciousness of which oppressed her at that time, like a nightmare. It was not strange that Rena, thus isolated, should have been prostrated by homesickness for several weeks after leaving Patesville. When the paroxysm had passed, there followed a dull pain, which gradually subsided into a resignation as profound, in its way, as had been her longing for home. She loved, she suffered, with a quiet intensity of which her outward demeanor gave no adequate expression. From some ancestral source she had derived a strain of the passive fatalism by which alone one can submit uncomplainingly 
to the inevitable. By the same token, when once a thing had been decided, it became with her a finality, which only some extraordinary stress of emotion could disturb. She had acquiesced in her brother's plan. For her there was no withdrawing. Her homesickness was an incidental thing, which must be endured, as patiently as might be, until time should have brought a measure of relief. Warwick had made provision for an occasional letter from Patesville by leaving with his mother a number of envelopes directed to his address. She could have her letters written, enclose them in these envelopes, and deposit them in the post office with her own hand. Thus the place of Warwick's residence would remain within her own knowledge, and his secret would not be placed at the mercy of any wandering Patesvillian who might perchance go to that part of South Carolina. By this simple means Rena had kept as closely in touch with her mother as Warwick had considered prudent. Any closer intercourse was not consistent with their present station in life. The night after Warwick and Tryon had ridden away, Rena dreamed again that her mother was ill. Better taught people than she, in regions more enlightened than the South Carolina of that epoch, are disturbed at times by dreams. Miss Molly had a profound faith in them. If God in ancient times had spoken to men in visions of the night, what easier way could there be for him to convey his meaning to people of all ages? Science, which has shattered many an idol and destroyed many a delusion, has made but slight inroads upon the shadowy realm of dreams. For Miss Molly, to whom science would have meant nothing, and psychology would have been a meaningless term, the land of dreams was carefully mapped and bounded. Each dream had some special significance, or was at least susceptible of classification under some significant head. Dreams, as a general rule, went by contraries. But a dream three times repeated was a certain portent of the thing defined. Rena's few years of schooling at Patesville and her months at Charleston had scarcely disturbed these hoary superstitions which lurk in the dim corners of the brain. No lady in Clarence, perhaps, would have remained undisturbed by a vivid dream three times repeated of some event bearing materially upon her own life. The first repetition of a dream was decisive of nothing, for two dreams meant no more than one. The power of the second lay in the suspense, the uncertainty to which it gave rise. Two doubled the chance of a third. The day following this second dream was an anxious one for Rena. She could not for an instant dismiss her mother from her thoughts, which were filled, too, with a certain self-reproach. She had left her mother alone. If her mother were really ill, there was no one at home to tend her with loving care. This feeling grew in force until by nightfall Rena had become very unhappy and went to bed with the most dismal forebodings. In this state of mind, it is not surprising that she now dreamed that her mother was lying at the point of death and that she cried out with heart-rending pathos. Rena, my darling, why did you forsake your poor old mother? Come back to me, honey. I'll die if I don't see you soon. The stress of subconscious emotion engendered by the dream was powerful enough to wake Rena, and her mother's utterance seemed to come to her with the force of a fateful warning and a great reproach. Her mother was sick and needed her, and would die if she did not come. 
she felt that she must see her mother. It would be almost like murder to remain away from her under such circumstances. After breakfast she went into the business part of the town and inquired at what time a train would leave that would take her toward Patesville. Since she had come away from the town, a railroad had been opened by which the long river voyage might be avoided, and making allowance for slow trains and irregular connections, the town of Patesville could be reached by an all-rail route in about twelve hours. Calling at the post office for the family mail, she found there a letter from her mother, which she tore open in great excitement. It was written in an unpractised hand and badly spelled, and was in effect as follows. My dear daughter, I take my pen in hand to let you know that I am not very well. I have had a kind of misery in my side for two weeks, with palpitations of the heart, and I have been in bed for three days. I'm feeling mighty poorly, but Dr. Green says that I'll get over it in a few days. Old Aunt Zilphy is staying with me and looking after things tolerably well. I hope this will find you and John enjoying good health. Give my love to John, and I hope the Lord will bless him and you, too. Cousin Billy Oxendine has had a rising on his neck, and has had to have it lanced. Mary B. has another young one, a boy this time. Old man Tom Johnson was killed last week while trying to whip black Jim Brown, who lived down on the Wilmington Road. Jim has run away. There has been a big freshet in the river, and it looked at one time as if the new bridge would be washed away. Frank comes over every day or two and asks about you. He says to tell you that he don't believe you are coming back any more, but you are to remember him and that foolishness he said about bringing you back from the end of the world with his mule and cart. He's very good to me, and brings over shavings and kindling wood, and made me a new well bucket for nothing. It's a comfort to talk to him about you, though I haven't told him where you are living. I hope this will find you and John both well and doing well. I should like to see you, but if it's the Lord's will that I shouldn't, I shall be thankful anyway that you have done what was the best for yourselves and your children, and that I have given you up for your own good. Your affectionate mother, Mary Walden. Rena shed tears over this simple letter, which, to her excited imagination, merely confirmed the warning of her dream. At the date of its writing, her mother had been sick in bed with the symptoms of a serious illness. She had no nurse but a purblind old woman. Three days of progressive illness had evidently been quite sufficient to reduce her parent to the condition indicated by the third dream. The thought that her mother might die without the presence of anyone who had loved her pierced Rena's heart like a knife and lent wings to her feet. She wished for the enchanted horse of which her brother had read to her so many years before on the front piazza of the house behind the cedars that she might fly through the air to her dying mother's side. She determined to go at once to Patesville. Returning home, she wrote a letter to Warwick, enclosing their mother's letter and stating that she had dreamed an alarming dream for three nights in succession, that she had left the house in charge of the servants and gone to Patesville, and that she would return as soon as her mother was out of danger. To her lover she wrote that she had been called away to visit a sickbed and would return very soon, perhaps by the time he got back to Clarence. 
these letters rena posted on her way to the train which she took at five o'clock in the afternoon this would bring her to patesville early in the morning of the following day end of section ten recording by james k white chula vista